Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is brother James Dowd. In September 2016, Brother James Dowd of the Order of the Holy Cross joined the staff of the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska for a two-year position as monk-in-residence. Brother James's ministry focuses on enriching our prayer and spiritual life and discovering and building better ways to befriend the poor in our communities. Prior to entering the monastery, Brother James lived in his hometown of New York City, where for 20 years he worked as a director of more than 100 theatre productions and numerous live events for television. Listeners may recall my conversation with Brother James on the theme of quiet. The podcast of that show can be heard via iTunes. Since that show aired in May 2017, Brother James has been central to the foundation of the Incarnation Monastery and the community of the Benedictine Way, which opened last month. This is the first Benedictine monastery in the history of the Diocese of Nebraska. Welcome to the show, Brother James. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's great to be back. Forgive the pun alluding to your theatre background, but uh, to set the stage, what is a monastery and what is it not? And perhaps what are some of the distinctions between uh, different orders that, mm-hmm. that um, run and occupy those monasteries? Sure. Um, you know, at its simplest, a monastery is a place where monks live. And monks might be male or female. Almost always they're separated by gender. Uh, that is not our intention, although at this time the monks that are living there are all male. But much more importantly than this is where monks live is that a monastery is a place, in particular in the Benedictine tradition, which is my tradition, is a place in which the very central heart of the building as well as uh, the life of the community is the place where we pray. So that would be the chapel. There are monasteries that are gigantic, you know, these big stone old edifices. Ours is a small little white house in North Omaha. And the size of it doesn't matter. When it was built doesn't matter. The purpose for which it was originally built doesn't matter. What does matter is that monks are living together in community, dedicating their life to that of prayer and service to the poor and the pilgrim. That's what St. Benedict said in his rule that he wrote for monks about 1,500 years ago. I like that distinction in terms of it can be almost any type of structure, any type of physical edifice, as it were. But it's the purpose to which it is used that is the most salient point. That's right. So when St. Benedict founded the first Benedictine monastery at Monte Cassino in Italy, much of central and all of what we think of as of the country of Italy was falling apart. The Roman Empire was in disarray, a great deal of famine and plague and warfare. And his solution to this, to how he was going to deal with that, with the followers he had, was he was, he said, let's come together and let's be a community together. In other words, let's love each other and take care of each other. We're going to pray because that's central to being a Christian. And we're going to welcome people who need help, whether they need food, whether they need a prayer said for them, whether they need a bed for the night, that sort of thing. So the idea of community, prayer, and hospitality is that's the way you define Benedictine life. What what about some other orders? How does Benedictine life and a Benedictine monastery differ from others that we might encounter. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of other uh, monastic traditions within Christianity. Uh, In Western Christianity, meaning Western Europe and what came to North America, so not the Eastern Orthodox, but in Western Christianity, um, you have monks, let's say, in the Carmelite tradition. That is uh, a great tradition. It is one that is based on much more solitary prayer, monks praying in their cells as opposed to coming to the chapel to pray together. Um, a kind of transformative experience that they're going to work on in their prayer. Others are extremely cloistered, like the Carthusians, uh, where they never leave the monastery. Uh, no one is, no other outside people are welcomed in unless they are thinking about becoming a monk. So they range from being quite active 
to being quite contemplative. What we try to do in our in the Benedictine tradition, and and specifically in what we're doing here in Omaha, is that we're trying to ride the fence right in between being both active and contemplative. Because it seems to us that at this particular moment of history, in this place and at this time, to turn our backs on the needs of the world feels totally wrong. And to turn our backs on the need for quiet and contemplation and a kind of way to push all the noise out seems equally wrong. So it is not an easy task to, to do both of those things, but that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. So I'm really interested to explore some of these dichotomies, the tensions between the external world and the internal world, our, our inner landscapes. Before we get there, you've started to suggest some of the rationale behind the foundation of this particular monastery. So why didn't you perhaps take us to the beginning of those conversations mm -hmm. and, and maybe take us on that journey as to why this monastery has come to be founded? Honestly, it's been in my dreams. I mean that literally in, in my dreams and then in more figuratively speaking, in my dreams for about 10 years now. The idea that somewhere maybe this is what God's calling me to. For a long time, I put that out of, I thought, no, this is craziness. We're not going to do that. Talked a lot with my spiritual director about this over many years. When I came here to Nebraska, it really was for a two-year stay. That was the plan. I kind of immediately fell in love with the place. And, you know, this is a New Yorker talking. So there's there's uh, some of my friends back east, you know, are like, yeah, you, you love it, you know, and I'm like, I love it a lot, you know, and there are things about the people here that I really love, the landscape, the city of Omaha itself. There's really a lot to, um, to grasp. But even more than that, the people of the Diocese of Nebraska are, and, and our, this is the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska, and the, the diocese is the entire state. So we're spread out over from Omaha all the way to Scotts Bluff. And they were, first of all, incredibly welcoming to me. And then the, the kind of hunch that I had about people, that they were really searching for ways to both explore the contemplative in their life and to continue doing the great outreach and service ministries that we do throughout the state, that was real for them. And as I was starting to talk about that, I could see a level of excitement in our clergy and our people thinking, yeah, we really want this. So with that, my kind of life had come to a point, and it seems like the life of the diocese had come to the point where this there was a synergy. So I started to talk to our bishop, Scott Barker. We were driving all the way out west somewhere, and you have a long time to talk when you're driving across the state. And I said, yeah, what would you think if it was really one of these kind of say the dream out loud, you know? He said immediately, if that's something you think you're really called to do, I want to really explore that with you. And we entered into almost a two-year, year, good year and a half at least, exploration of, does this really make sense in my own vocational call? Does it make sense in the diocese, uh, in the vocation of the diocese as a whole? Because we really see this as a diocesan ministry. And the more we prayed about it and the more we talked about it and started to include other people into those conversations, the more there were all yeses and no nos. We started to put it out in a wider and wider circles. And with each of those sort of discernment questions with that, these wider and wider circles, we got, let's do this. And what do you need? How can we help you? So we got to the point where we, where we realized we really did want to do this. We had a great location to do it in, which is uh, on Belvedere Boulevard, just off of 30th here in North O. Could you describe that community too, so that you can paint the picture for listeners as to what that community is like right. and why you're there? So the uh, community we're in on Belvedere in, in North O, right next to the Church of the Resurrection, which is one of our churches, is a church that is a neighborhood, excuse me, that is um, filled with really great people. It's a pretty diverse community. It is... Uh, there are often t people, t there are oftentimes people there struggling uh, financially, though not always. 
And it is a, we wanted to be among a group of people that we could stand with and say, sort of throw our doors open and say, who wants to come pray with us? Who wants to come have a meal with us? We just wanted to be present to the community and in a way that was just us being, trying to be Christians. There isn't a strong tradition in Benedictine monasticism of evangelizing. We don't so much go out to people as we invite people in. That's really what our tradition is. So another type of, like a Franciscan, is meant to go out in the streets and they're going to do their thing out there and that's, and it's a beautiful way of uh, living out of vocation. What Benedictines do is say, come to us, right? We've got this chapel you can pray in. We've got a place of peace. We have a bowl of soup. You know, we have a, a place of rest. Um, so sometimes you have to go out in order to let people know you're there. But the idea of it is that we want it to be right in the middle of a neighborhood that has lots of people that may be looking for something like this. And so it was a great place. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground pile. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers, some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers, some come to stare, some to stay. And every day, the ones who stay can find each other in the crowded streets and the guarded parks. By the rusty fountains and the dusty trees with the battered barks. And they walk together past the postered walls with the crude remorse. Part of your description so far of, of how the monastery came into being and some of the motivations behind it and some of the choices about where it should be and why make me think about commerce and how new products or new businesses would do market research to ascertain what is the demand and the need for something like a product or a service and how and where should we we sell it. And I know that's somewhat crass to make that kind of comparison. Nonetheless, I, I wonder if you did go through not just a discernment process with with people about the spiritual aspects, but some of the more, I don't know, practical aspects of how and why the monastery should be created and, and or founded and, and where it should be, and, and maybe what some of the aspirations or goals are for mm-hmm. that monastery. Certainly no sort of formal marketing, you know, research. We did do a considerable amount of um, actually looking all over the state. We, we Initially, it was not that we must be in Omaha. It was we must be where we think we're best called. I would say the practical side that helped in settling where we did is that the Church of the Resurrection owns the house, one of our houses, and the diocese owns the other house. So in other cases, that might not, in other places, that might not have been the case. So that was helpful from a practical point of view. But in the end, if there were another place that we felt called that first, that I'll come back to that, but we we might as well have gone there. We did have several principles. One was that the community needed to be open to all genders, sexualities, races, ages, all of that. And that's the first thing. And the second thing was that we needed to open up what does it mean to be part of a Benedictine community. So for us, you have to have a core group of monastics, people who take vows to the tradition and to God, but through the tradition. And are doing that because they want to live as a Benedictine monk for the rest of their life. But we also know that that's a hard sell today. 
right? Not loads of people are signing up to be monks, right? And yet we find many, many lay people who are really drawn to the spirituality of Benedictine life. And so what we wanted to do was establish what we're calling the Benedictine Service Corps. And these are for young adults in their 20s that can learn over the course of a year or two uh, what it means to pray like a Benedictine monk and to serve the poor. But then they're going to go on with their life. They're either going to go get a job afterwards or go to grad school, go to seminary or whatever it is they do. But to give them a foundation that they can sort of enter into adulthood with, a real life of spirituality, which for us means both the prayer and the service to the poor. And also to be available to older adults who do not want to be monks, but again, a year or two or three or more of their life where they live as oblates. And that those are people who are connected to the community and also are learning how to pray and serve as a Benedictine does. So what we wanted to do was throw open as wide a door as possible into this monastic life and invite people in any one of those three categories to come join the community. The third piece is that most monks, most Benedictines certainly, feel that they, we, should stand with the poor. The reason we do that is because that's who Christ stood with. There is no um, doubt in the gospel that the people that Jesus chooses to be his followers, to minister to, to heal, to teach, uh, to side with, are the poor, the sick, the prisoner, you know, all of that. And... North Omaha is this incredibly diverse community that has all sorts of things going on. One of the things they have going on is that there are a lot of working poor in that neighborhood, as well as middle-class people and upper-middle-class people. Lots of races, lots of religious backgrounds, and no religious background. And it felt like to us the diversity of that community was the place to stand with because that's where Christ would have stood. So here we are. You move that conversation forward with Bishop Barker and you explored where you were called to and what communities were calling to to this possibility. And you come closer and closer to the decision and it crystallizes. So how did it crystallize and what has been happening since you've opened your doors? You know, it's funny because the bishop teases me because he says that I went through about a six-month period where I would just like pop into his office and say, you're not going to believe what happened now. And what and what that was about was um, so many things that I, in my planning and in my kind of now, once we got past the dream and okay, like, what are we, how are we actually going to do this? I would say, well, I think in two to three years we can have this, but this is maybe a five-year thing out, you know, that sort of thing. And they'd be happening right then. And the reason he teases me, he says, you're the man of prayer, you know, <laughs> you've been praying for this for a long time now. Um, it's really true. It, and, you know, what we believe in my tradition is that the, the Holy Spirit dwells in every person. The Holy Spirit is really the one, St. Paul tells us, is really the one, the being praying within you. And we're simply either going with it or not. And it seems to me that the Holy Spirit was praying within me for a long time. And I finally said, you know, enough. Okay, we'll do this. And then the doors just opened. And those doors were things like, first of all, having the houses available, uh, having people who were willing to donate some money to help the, the houses needed some serious renovation, both cases. Then having people who said, I'd like to be part of this. You know, the idea that there's another monk a service corps person, an oblate, all as we opened our door, was not part of my plan. I thought, well, okay, this will be the several years, you know. And there they were, signing up. There are now more people who are interested in becoming oblates and a few more who are in an early stage of considering monastic vows. Um, 
some of our neighbors have seen, and, and interestingly, often led by children who then would bring their parents over or whatever and say, like, what are you guys doing in there? <laughs> you could see us. The chapel is, is the living room that looks right out onto the front. And um, I was like, well, we're praying. Well, could we come? Well, sure. <laughs> come on in. And I think what that says to me is the hunch that we had and the, the sort of gamble we took that there really are more people interested in this sort of thing than just us, our little group, really is true. And that it's it's panning out in a way that's real. I mean, we're only open about a month now, um, officially open. But even that, for example, our foundation day, we celebrated back on September 14th. Initially, we were going to do that in the house of Incarnation Monastery. And in that chapel, if we stuffed people in, really stuffed them in, we could probably fit 30 people. And our reservations for that evening's Eucharist, the, the bishop was coming to preside at a, at a Holy Eucharist. And we passed 30 and we got to about 50. And I said to the bishop, maybe we should do this on the lawn, really hope for great weather. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll do it on the lawn. Well, we passed 50, we passed 80 reservations, and now we can't fit them on the lawn anymore. So we, t- we talked to the Church of the Resurrection and we said, can we borrow the church, you know? And we ended up with over 150 people. That was people turning out to to pray with us as we kicked all of this off and to really show their support, that they really do want this. These are not people who are going to become monks, but they're people who want to have a monastery in their midst, to know that it's a place where they can come pray. All of our prayer uh, services are open to the public. So that really was a huge sign to me that that this is working. Would you indulge my curiosity and describe what is the space like? I'm imagining this, you know, suburban detached home, almost as if a family was living there. But mm-hmm. but I'm conjuring this image and I, I really want to step back and allow you to paint this image of what sure. this house is like. Who's living there at the moment and what do your days look like? So the house is is a detached, you know, small house. It um, It's a little screened-in porch. You walk up on that, and when you walk through the front door in what would be a living room in a family's home is the chapel. And so – and it looks like a chapel. We, it's uh, – sometimes a, a community in a house like this will do very – you know, sit around on the sofas and pray that way, that kind of thing, and that's a fine way of doing it. But Benedictine spirituality really is based on the liturgy, what what we do together in in a formal prayer service. And so there's an altar because we sometimes have the Eucharist there, you know, chapel chairs, that sort of thing. And so you walk in and you immediately get that the heart of the house, like I said earlier, is the place where they pray. And it's kind of an L shape. And the other part of the L is the dining room which in monastic language we call a refectory, which is a very fancy word. And the refectory, the reason I, I, as soon as I walked in, I knew that that was the house I wanted to have be the monastery as opposed to the one next door because you could put the chapel and the refectory together. And the two central pieces of Benedictine spirituality are prayer and hospitality, welcoming the stranger. So we even have the chairs that are in the chapel are the same as the dining room table's chairs. And if we need more at the dining room table, we move them out of the chapel. If we need more in the chapel, we move them from the dining room because we want to communicate that the food and drink that we have at the altar is the same as the food and drink we have at the dining room table in the sense that this is what brings us together as a community. There's a kitchen off of the dining room and that's the public space of the monastery. There's a bedroom for me, a bedroom for Brother Columba, and a big open basement uh, that could be made into several other bedrooms, should we need them if we grow. Dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? If I were a rich man, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, 
I wouldn't have to work hard If I were a pity, pity rich Idle, diddle, diddle, diddle man I'd build a big tall house with rooms by the dozen Right in the middle of the town A fine tin roof with real wooden floors below There couldn't be one long staircase just going up And one even longer coming down And one more leading nowhere just for show I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear. You've talked a little bit about what this might mean for the community. What might this mean for the diocese, maybe the Episcopal diocese itself, and for Nebraska at large, given that at this point this is a fairly localized, obviously it's open to anybody, but it's a fairly geographically localized monastery. So what what does it mean for Nebraska at large and and for the diocese? I think for the diocese, um, it first of all shows both internally within the diocese and to the wider national church that we really value Benedictine, uh, a Benedictine ethos, life, prayer, and service to the poor. For the diocese, it gives me a platform which in the first two years was just me and me sort of running around, you know, to tell people about what it is monks do and how that might be transferred to lay people. But here it gives me and Brother Columba and others that will come a wider opportunity to both go out to those parishes and to welcome people in. So it's easy to welcome people in for a specific service and a specific meal. Uh, we have a guest room, and we've already had a guest. That is a really important piece, both for the diocese and the state as a whole, because St. Benedict, in the rule, 1,500 years ago, wrote, a monastery will always have guests. And there's something about a monastery, no matter how large or small, that draws people. Sometimes that's about the prayer. Sometimes it's about, well, maybe they'll be good to me. I need a place to rest, a place to heal, uh, just a place to be quiet. And in our time, with so much craziness all around us, I would say the consistent thing I hear from people is how much they need a sense of quiet and peace. And that's what we strive to live. Our, we live our own lives that way. And so that permeates the monastery itself. So you mentioned our time and so much craziness and the need for some reflection space. I'd like to play a little extract from our conversation a year ago, and you referenced Thomas Merton. So I'll, I'll play that now, and then we can talk about that. Thomas Merton, one of the great Trappist monks of all time, he's... Uh, when Pope Francis was speaking before Congress, he he quoted him, and he was an American monk um, out of Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. Died in 1968, and Merton talked about he was resp- he was really the first to respond to the New World, and his New World not meaning the continents, but meaning uh, in the post-atomic age and in the mechanization of life. Okay, so again, he died in 1968, so he's writing in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it's nothing like what we experience now. And what Merton talked about was um, a complete loss of civility because, for one reason, and that was because man no longer had any time for quiet. That the um, life of humanity was so dragged down by what we were living through in those decades, uh, by the noise of it, the pace of it, um, that men could no longer, of course, he was always using that men, you know, he wasn't talking about, but he meant humanity. Uh, He was, that they could no longer live peacefully with each other 
or in a way that was in any way uplifting or communal. So that was May of 2017. And it doesn't seem as if things have gotten any better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to say that that is true. It doesn't seem like it's gotten better. But you have changed and you have changed the context in which you internally practice your faith and have manifested that in a very physical, practical, external way in the community. So thinking to what you said then about Thomas Merton and and the need in our external world, as well as people's internal needs, I'm wondering if you think any further about what has happened in the last year and how that has necessitated perhaps even more the work that you're doing at the monastery. Yeah. When I think about this, when I think, and a lot of people have asked me about my vocation story and my own take on vocation in a a lot more recently than has happened since I first, you know, became a monk. And one of the things I say all the time is that for me, being a monk and attempting to live by this particular way of uh, being is complete liberation for me. It's, it's total freedom. It is not meant for everybody, but f- the way I was created and what God calls me to says that all of the chains that hold me back, some of which I impose on myself, my own, the way your head can play a tape over and over again, uh, the way you behave, that sort of thing, some of which others impose on you, some of which just society does, right? All of that, all of my journey in monasticism has been those breaking away and just falling away. It seems to me that at this time, our country has wrapped itself up in chains. Some of the really important priorities for any society, um, the the ability to speak with each other in a way that is um, civil, the desire to care for the poor and the sick, and those in a great deal of trouble on every level, not just I'm a nice guy to my neighbor, which is very important, but on governmental levels and church levels, on other social services, that sort of thing. Um, We keep chipping away at that. And we continue to put our money and our energy into things that attempt to kill others and weapons and that sort of thing. And that also we do on a personal level and on a governmental level. We continue to um, turn our backs on the poor. We continue to become more and more uh, tribal. And that is looking for a lot of trouble, right? If we continue on this road... This country did that once, and there was a lot, a lot, a lot of people dying because of it in the mid-19th century. I think that something that tiny little incarnation monastery in the Benedictine way can do for people is to help us find peace. And the reason that we can do that is because peace always does start internally, right? Jesus says that, Gandhi says it, you know, all across the board. If if you are just crazed inside your head, even justifiably crazed, right? So even when it's the other party is totally wrong, or the news you just heard has made you completely crazy, even when it's justifiable, if you can't come back to a place of peace, and this doesn't mean denying the emotions that you're feeling doesn't mean repressing those emotions. It means how do you find your way back to peace? If you can't do that internally, you can never do it with someone else. Uh, The tribes within the country can never do it. Uh, Nation to nation can never do it. And so that's really what we have to offer. And 
I don't have any illusions that that's some kind of giant, you know, United Nations way of, you know, solving world, you know, world peace or something. But I know from my own life and I know from a lot of people, other monks that I've lived with and other people who've come to monasteries I've lived in, that your life can change. It can be better. It can be more peaceful, even under terrible circumstances. And that's really our hope. So whether the hunger is for food or it's for some kind of spirituality, that's what the monastery always offered the world. I really like these dichotomies that we talked about earlier, this idea of an internal landscape and, and the external world, the balance between hospitality, community, and contemplation, and this drawing towards something insular in terms of solitude, but also this expansiveness that we're seeking to, to be engaged in the world. It makes me want to ask you a, a hard question. So it seems to me that society is looking to faith for approaches to harmony and mindfulness, and it's a chaotic world. But they've also become leery of faith because we see some of the the scandals around sexual assault. We also see, I think, maybe in the Catholic Church and others now, what seems to be a politicization of power struggles within those within those religions. And so we have this tension between this urge towards faithfulness, and yet the modern world is catching up with with those too. They seem to be infected, as it were, by the, the ills that we see in the world around us. So how do we, and maybe how do you, navigate these tensions? And those tensions are real. And they're real for people who just have kind of dropped out of going to church, you know, if they come from a Christian tradition, even for people who continue to go to church, many of them struggle with this. Um, the Christian church, meaning all of us, not just a particular denomination, has caused all kinds of scandals, right? Uh, there's actually nothing new about that. There's 2,000 years of scandals in, in the Christian church, in part because we're human beings and none of us are perfect. That said, I think we have a higher responsibility to work really hard at not <laughs> causing scandals and actually inspiring people by our lives and our, and our words and our actions. Um, which is a, which is a very difficult thing to do. I understand why someone looks at a denomination or all of them and says, no way. I'm just done with that craziness. In part, those are a lot of the people a monastery draws. Because while, you know, in this state and, and most pretty much anywhere in the world, if it's a Benedictine monastery, it's either Catholic or Episcopalian. Worldwide, it might be called Anglican. We're the two traditions that have kept Benedictine monasticism. But while our denomination is very important to us, whether we're Catholic or Episcopalian, we really predate both Roman Catholicism, the way it's understood today, and certainly Anglicanism. We go way back, and we, we are 1,500 years old, and the people we took this idea from are another 300 years old. It goes almost to the beginning of Christianity. And what we're not about ever is partisanship. But the gospel is political sometimes. So that's the balance we're trying to pull here, right? But the way we do that is not so much by trying to talk somebody into take care of the poor. That can certainly be simply a religious statement. It can also be seen as a political statement. And in the Christian tradition, that makes sense because God is the God of all. So it's not that God is just God of what happens in church, but God is God of what happens in the halls of government, in a corporate building, out on the playground, anywhere you go. So tell somebody, we really need to be caring for the poor in very specific ways. All of a sudden, sometimes you're too political. I'm willing to take that on. Because what I'm trying to do and what our community is trying to do is help people understand that when you are seeking that peace and you are praying and meditating, the goal in the Christian journey of meditation is to become more and more like Christ. And if you look at Christ's life, you know what he did. He hung out with sinners. 
he healed sick people. He cared, he fed lots of hungry people quite regularly. And my sense is that when you can get to that place where not that you're perfect at it, because the good Lord knows I am not, but if you're trying, really trying, suddenly a lot of those tribal things don't matter so much. They start to melt away. They don't totally go away. But you're able to see another person as a human being, as a child of God. I think that's the goal. Gray skies are gonna clear up, put on a happy face. Brush off the clouds and cheer up, put on a happy face. Take off the gloomy mask of tragedy, it's not your style. You look so good that you'll be glad you decided to smile. Pick out a pleasant outlook, stick out that noble chin. Wipe off that full of doubt look, slap on a happy grin. And spread sunshine all over the place, just put on a happy face. Put on a happy face Put on a happy face And if you're feeling cross and bickerish Don't sit and whine Think of banana splits and licorice And you feel fine I knew a girl You know, we spoke a year ago I don't know how you maybe imagine life would, would proceed over the next 12, 24 months but it occurs to me that a lot of really positive things have happened, and I, I don't doubt the work or the sacrifice. But the question that popped into my head was, this seems quite remarkable and really successful. How do you stay, how do you keep your humility? Hmm. An excellent question. That you could be my spiritual director. Um, the first thing I would say is to remember how long of a struggle it was for me to get to the place that I could do this. Mostly, the struggle was, was within me, 80% of it, right? Um, the second piece is that there is no way I could do it alone. There, it, it, that would be, you know, the antithesis of what building a monastic community was. And so the sort of first partner I had in discerning this and actually making it happen was Bishop Barker. You know, to be a bishop of the church is a really busy job. You are constantly working. I mean, it's it, it's extraordinary to watch what they have to do up close as I get the chance to do. And so incredible, incredible amount of busyness and an incredible amount of need. He needs to be in all of those 53 churches at least once every year. And he has a staff he has to, you know, worry about and take care of and, and listen to and, you know, all of that. There's a lot that goes on in his life. And when I saw his level of commitment to let's really discern this together, and then once we got to a point where I said, yeah, I really want to do this, then let's figure out how to do it, and then we did it. There are members of the, of the bishop's staff that then joined in that same kind of discernment. What that said to me was I did have to have the vision. And I didn't need to be able to be sort of courageous enough to, to articulate it. And that's the one place I would say I was just courageous. But after that, it could have just completely fallen on deaf ears. Or a person who's just like, wonderful idea. If you can get it going, great. You know, God bless you, right? But that's not what Bishop Barker did. And it's not what a lot of the rest of the staff did or anything else like that. So that keeps me humble because... It's literally impossible. As great of an idea as it might have been, if it was just my idea, it wouldn't have flown. I would think those are the major things. But honestly, prayer is the other thing, right? And as a community has begun to develop, so brand new pe people, brand new at this, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks in, they already challenge you. Sometimes it's just questions like informational questions. They want to, well, why do we do this? Or what does this mean? Or sometimes it's like, Maybe we could do this a better way. And nine times out of ten, they're right, you know. And that's that's the kind of glory of community life, 
it also makes it difficult sometimes. But thus far, you know, talk to me a year from now, but thus far, it's really been a joy. So let me ask you then, aspiration seems to be the wrong word. It seems far too secular for an endeavor so worthy. So what would be your hopes and prayers for the monastery? My hopes and prayers for Incarnation Monastery would be that first of all, we would live a life, whoever is a member of that community, all of us together, that we would live a life worthy of the call to Benedictine life is. And that doesn't mean be perfect. It means get up the next day and try again. My second sort of hopes and prayers would be that people know this is a place for everyone to come. And what I mean by that is oftentimes the idea of a monastery, people think, oh, well, that's just for monks. It's not. We don't get to go there. And all of our prayer services are open six days a week. On Monday, we take a a Sabbath day where we're not open to the public. But Tuesday through Sunday, we are. So people are welcome to come join us, even if they're just curious. Whether they're Christian or not Christian, whatever they are, they're welcome to be there. Um, we've had people coming and they come back a fair amount. So that's great. This is not a big place, you know, physically large. It's not at all. And yet we can find a way to fit people in and they can join in our kind of aspirations and hopes. The third is that we can really learn to stand in solidarity with the people in North O and find out from them what it is we can do in that community that would help build up that community. We're not looking to tell people, oh, this is how you should live, or this is what you need, or this is what you want. Uh, We're looking to learn from our neighbors and to find a way to be in community with them. And the fourth piece would be several years down the line, we'd love to have a second place in some other part of the diocese and specifically in uh, a rural area to kind of uh, balance for the community what we learn about what life in an urban area and a rural area have in common and what they don't. And some of that has, for me, has come from the political situation we find ourselves in within the country, where there seems to be such a gigantic divide between rural and urban people that much of which feels like it's false that what people need, I don't know, 80%, 90% is the same, whether you live in a rural area, suburban area, or uh, an urban area. We talked a year ago, and you shared some of how you found your way into this calling of faith. Um, but, But you told us about growing up in a diverse neighborhood, sort of Irish, but surrounded by diverse uh, cultures in Queens, I think it was, mm-hmm. in New York, and and this career in theater, and then eventually this epiphany moment where you, you, it had been with you all this time, but you really felt called to the action of embarking on a life of faith. So th- that's in the previous show, and obviously I would encourage people to learn more about your journey from that particular show and podcast. But then as we wrap up here, it makes me want to ask you about a life of faith looking ahead. How do you see your life developing? How do you see your commitment to to the remainder of your years? That's a great question. What I know about faith is that It sounds almost cliche, but the best word I know for it is journey. That there, that there, there's an arc to my life that begins when I'm very, very young and continues to this moment. And I assume is going because there was never a break in that. And I assume is going to continue till I'm dead. That is about discovering two things that are actually one. The first is a continual deepening of the understanding of who I am. Everything about me, from the very best of who I am, to the very worst of who I am, to the things I'm good at and not good at, to the hopes and dreams and whatever it is that's going on within me. And the second piece of that is an ever-deepening understanding of who God is. 
Now, the understanding of who I am can be more concrete. But the understanding of who God is, um, generally for most people, happens in a very slow and methodical way. God seems to reveal God's self uh, over a long period of time, through a lot of experiences, through a lot of prayer, through a lot of people in your life. And those two things start to come together, an understanding of who you are and who God is, and an understanding that at our very core, God dwells. That's what we believe as Christians. God is dwelling within you and in every other person. And when you are able to get past whatever impediments you have, even good stuff, right? Because that could make you think, I don't need God. You know, I'm really, I got, I'm on top of the world, right? When you get to that core, you find God. And that's what a life of prayer and service is meant to be. So my hope and prayer for the rest of my life is that that will continue. It will continue to deepen. And then even beyond death, that that journey still continues in an ever-deepening relationship with God where I believe that God calls all of humanity to oneness. I think even the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, this idea that there are these three beings, but they're one, is like the prime example for us. And part of being called into oneness is being called into God. And so the more that I can work on who I am and allow, more, more, more importantly, allow the Holy Spirit to work on me, the closer I get to that oneness. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, Download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Brother James Dow. Brother James, thank you for being again on the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's been wonderful. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.